Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Along with my co-host, Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Eric, we have made it into our eighth month now with this podcast. In terms of episodes, we've gone past the big 4-0. It's in the rearview mirror already. So um, what do you think? Do you think we should keep on going the way we've been doing it? Or I guess time to shake things up a little bit. Uh, is that really our decision? Don't our, don't our bosses <laughs> tell us uh, what to do? We don't make well, any decisions here. Well, of late, we've been venturing down different into different territory and just saying to hell with it. You know, what the <laughs> heck? I feel liberated. <laughs> That's true. We, we definitely did venture into a uh, different territory last uh, last week. We took a little detour into vaguely political topics, and uh, it seemed to go well. We didn't get any particular backlash that I saw. Um, so I'm thinking this week... Let's just lean all the way in. Let's not talk boxing at all on this episode of the podcast. Instead, uh, Kieran uh, will now share his views on gun violence, climate change, gerrymandering, and election security. Please take it away, Kieran. Okay, so in order, uh, against, 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 four. <laughs> there you go. Okay, all right. Yep, that is the uh, kind of in-depth analysis you can expect from our new podcast, Where We Stand on Things. First, where we stand, any... where we stand on things. Parentheses with no explanation. With no explanation, exactly. Yes. Yeah, you have to uh, subscribe. That's on the plus version <laughs> of the of the subscription. Right. So I think every every episode should last about two minutes, which works for people like me, whose commute is like walking up the stairs to the home office. <laughs> there you go. That's the perfect two minute podcast. That's an underserved category of podcast listener. I think <laughs> it is. Certainly, we're not serving it. That's for sure. Um, so actually, no, on this episode, we are, in fact, you'll be pleased to hear, really going to do a boxing podcast. Uh, later on, Eric and I will jibber jabber our way through the week's news as we do. Um, but we're going to start strong this week, actually, uh, with somebody who, perhaps unlike us, actually knows a very great deal about boxing. Uh, we are joined right now by former Olympian, former world titleist, and now Showtime color analyst, the one and only Raul Marquez. Raul, welcome to the show, buddy. Thank you, and uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the invite, guys. You bet. Um, so it uh, took us a little bit of time arranging uh, a, a time for us to talk this weekend, and a large reason for that was because you have a son boxing in an amateur tournament this weekend. So first questions first, how did he do? Well, actually, uh, you know, he did really well. Uh, he, he won uh, uh, yesterday, which was Saturday, uh, and he's in the finals today. Uh, I'm very excited, you know, uh, He's trying to qualify for the uh, Olympic trials. Uh, we're going to an Olympic qualifier in uh, in Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio, in October. So we're just trying to get him a lot of experience, you know, trying to get him more fights. Uh, mm. Maybe like about a month ago, he, he won a, another tournament. He won like three fights in a row, got the Outstanding Fighter Award. And now he's fighting this tournament he won yesterday. So hopefully he'll win today. And he's just trying to, you know, get him different styles and, and you know, let him uh, – by different guys so he'll you know be able to adjust when when the time is right and you know when we bring him up there to the qualifier and hopefully he'll do well and, and i know you you have a, a few sons uh raul is, is this giovanni is do i have that right yes uh that's giovanni okay. marquez yeah he's he's 18 years old uh and uh, you know he's fine amateur and he's trying to like i said he's trying to qualify for the olympic trials which are going to be held in uh in i believe in lake charles louisiana in december and, you know, try to make the Olympic team in Tokyo. So uh, he's doing very well. Uh, he's got a great style. Uh, he, he's a pretty good amateur. I mean, he has, he's only lost one time this year. 
Uh, we went, we had gone to another qualifier uh, a couple of months ago and he lost. Uh, he won a couple of fights and he lost to the number two seed guy. It was a very close fight. You know how amateur boxing can go sometimes. It was a close fight, but anyway, we didn't get the decision. We're in the business, so we keep trying, and that's why we're, you know, we're going to another qualifier in October. Okay, but I know, I know you have another son, uh, Arturo, who is a professional boxer. Is is becoming a pro something that, that yes. Giovanni has his eye on as well? Yeah, Arturo. Arturo actually, Arturo's on. Uh, his career is on standby right now. You know, he okay. he, had, he we got him to ten and zero, uh, and we fought. You know, one of them veteran guys that test them, and he he won. He did well. Uh, but, you know, they poked his eyes. So, you know, he's having mm. little pro- problems with his eyes. So we, we don't know what's mm. going to happen at this point. But, yeah, with Giovanni, like uh, like he's doing so far, he's doing really good in the amateurs. And uh, does he think about going pro down the line? Yeah. I mean, that, that's what he wants to do. You know, I have to I have to support him. You know, my, my kids, they want to box. And, you know, I try to keep them away from boxing as long as I could. But, mm. you know, uh, for me being in the business and, you know, I've obviously me being in a a fighter and you know the, my whole family loving boxing uh i couldn't keep them away from the ring you know the sooner or later they, they get that i really i really want to try it so you know i got to support them and uh and see what happens you know i tell them hey it's a tough sport uh you can you know you can't put your all your eggs in one basket you know so i tell them you got to go to school college and all that because uh not everybody makes the the, the millions like Ford Mayweather does, you know. <laughs> right. right, exactly. <laughs> of course you were a great amateur yourself, outstanding, really. Uh you won a yes. bronze in the world championships, uh won nationals at forty seven and fifty four pounds, and you represented the US at the ninety two Olympics. And to get into that that Olympics, you had to beat some really good names in in the trials. Robert Allen, Lonnie Bradley, Antoine Eccles, they were really, really good names. Um and it's interesting. I, I've talked to some pro boxers, several actually, who won world titles even, including your 92 teammate, Chris Bird. And some of them say, you know what, for all the world titles, being at the Olympics, man, that was my career highlight. And, and I wonder if you feel the same way. You lost in the quarterfinals, you didn't medal, but, but is that really a special memory for you being in the Olympics? Absolutely. Actually, it really was. You know, uh, you know besides that, not, you know, I was one of the favorites to win a medal to, to medal at that Olympics, um, the guy that I lost to, Orphan Delibas, I lost to him in the quarterfinals, and he went on to the finals and, and got a silver medal. And, you know, like I said, I, I literally lost to find the, the second half of the third round, you know, like mm. they had the new scoring, computer scoring system, and it just went beep, 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 beep. And anyways, <laughs> I lost like 17, I lost 17 to 12 or something like that. But I was ahead at the beginning of the third round. Mm. But, to make the story short, you know, the guy uh, went to the finals. He got a silver medal. And Juan Lemus, the guy that won the gold medal, the Cuban, I had beat three months before the Olympics mm. in another tournament. So, you know, just, uh, you know, the wrong tournament uh, at the wrong time. It, you know, I, I had beat Juan Lemus who won the gold medal. But, you know, it wasn't the Olympics. But get back to your question, uh, yes, I mean, the Olympics, I mean, is very memorable for me. Like, I, I'm never going to forget, you know, just – just being a part of the, you know, USA team and, you know, walking in the, uh, in Barcelona in the opening ceremonies. And that's, that's something that I'll never yeah. forget, you know, with, uh, I remember the dream team was there. Right. That was the first time I had the dream team, the basketball team. And, uh, just, you know, it, it, it meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to me, you know, to represent the, the U S and then, you know, of course me being, you know, from black Hispanic descent, uh, and, you know, just, uh, all the years of hard work and amateurs being on the national team 
for four years, be on top, being, you know, uh, ranked uh, number one in the, in the United States and in the top six in the world. And you make the Olympic team, uh, you just, it means everything, you know, it's all mm-hmm. the hard work that you put in, uh, you know, the Olympic village, mm-hmm. uh, all the athletes, all the, 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 the different cultures, you know, just meeting different people, you know, the competition and every sport, um, it, it, you know, it brings back a lot of memories, you know, it's uh, the, the elite, the elite in every sport, you know, they, yeah. they, they reunite, uh, you know, every four years and it's, it's incredible, man. It's, it's an, an incredible atmosphere. And uh, of course, you know, after you, you get eliminated, the, the fiestas, the, the, the parties after that, <laughs> you know, when we were young, I gotta be honest, you know, I mean, it, you'll never forget that. It was, it was fun. It was yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool for the rest of your life to be able to say that uh, that you and Michael Jordan were peers, uh, part of the <laughs> part of the same Olympic parade. Yeah, I mean the Olympic model. You know, once an Olympian, always an Olympian. You know, yeah. uh, that's the Olympic model. And you know, I do a lot of stuff here in, in Houston with you know the local Olympians. You know, like Carl Lewis and Mary Lou Redden. We always have different Olympic events, and uh, hmm. it's always going to follow you. You know, it's always going to follow you. I mean, I'll be 60 years old, 70 years old, hopefully 80 one day, mm-hmm. and still attending events because I was an Olympian. So it, it was a great honor to, to, to be there in Barcelona, you know, a team that, that did pretty well. You know, you know the, the Golden Boy Oscar won the gold medal, and, and Chris surprised Chris Bird surprised everybody, you know, mm-hmm. by winning a silver medal because we, we would, we would uh, you know, uh, every time we would fight Russia or Cuba – all the international events, Chris probably almost the majority of the times would lose, you know, he, mm. he would never win. And then he goes to the Olympics and, you know, gets a silver medal. So it was, it was huge. You know, it was, it was a big tournament for uh, Chris Bird. Yeah. yeah. So moving along to your pro career, uh, you, you won a world title in 1996 against Anthony Stevens and defended it twice, uh, but then lost it to Yuri Boy Campus. And I was yes. at I was at the campus fight and you were having success okay. early, at, you know, yes. boxing pretty well. Your chin was taking his punches just fine. Your skin, however, was not. You, you had, you know, you had really bad cuts and swellings in that fight, just as you did in your previous fight against Keith Mullins. Right. So as good as your career was, how much further do you think you could have gone had your skin been able to hold up better? Uh, that's a great question, everybody. I mean, I, that's, a, that's a hell of a question, too, Chris, <laughs> because I think, I mean, you, you know, you live and learn experience. You mm-hmm. know, uh, me and my dad were, were new. You know, we, we didn't, obviously, we don't know, we didn't know at that point what I know now about the boxing world. And, uh, you know, I had fought Keith Mullins uh, in September of that year, as you know, uh, when on the De La Hoya Camacho card, I was a co-main event. And a lot of people didn't know Keith Mullins, but I knew him from the amateurs. And uh, he was a good fighter. He was in the Olympic trials, too. Uh, an Army guy, Army or Marines. I believe he was in the right. Army. <laughs> and uh, he was tough. You know, I know he was going to be a tough fight. And I got banged up in that fight pretty well, you know, pretty bad. I got cut up, but, you know, because of my drive and my heart and experience and, you know, and just, you know, what, what I call big balls, you know, that's, that's the main <laughs> thing. Uh, I, I, I survived the, the whole fight and I, and I still pulled out a good decision. And I should have, you know, I should have taken some time off after that fight. I should have taken at least six months off mm. to let my face heal right. Um, and, you know, the doctor told me, you know, your face, it, it looks healed from the outside, but, you know, the cuts in the inside, they were still traumatized, you know. So mm. that's what happened in the U-Boy campus fight. And, you know, pressure from the promoter, uh, you know, promises maybe to fight Oscar De La Hoya the following year in 1998, you know, mm-hmm. with a, uh, 
we took the fight with your boy campus i mean at that point your boy was a knockout artist i mean the guy had a great record he had a name in mexico people knew him and it, it was the guy if you see if you watch the fight i, w- I was beating him you know i, w- I was right. i was at the point of the stoppage you know they i believe one judge had it even one judge had it for me one judge had it for him but the point is as the fight went you know my my face just didn't hold up it kept it wasn't so much the cuts that opened up. Maybe I had little bitty cuts, but my the swelling was like grotesque. Mm. You know, like I just swole up like a like like the elephant man or something. You know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I couldn't see. I couldn't see, and they stopped the fight. And you know, even after years, you know, this is just going back since you're asking me about the fight, not to make any excuses, but you know what happened in that fight. You know, uh, you know the the late cut man. You know, Rafael Garcia, the pin man, which I would call him. You know, who yeah. worked uh, your boys campus corner and. Uh, Miguel Diaz, you know, because of experience, you know, they, they told me your boy wanted to, he wanted to literally quit in the fourth round because I was catching him with some big shots. And, uh, you know, we've seen your boy quit in the past too in other fights with, you know, Fernando Vargas, for example. When the tough kid's going and you really, you know, uh, hit him good, he, he, he's known to quit. But they kept him going because, you know, they, they said, look, his, his face is going to swell up. You know, they, they're going to end up stopping the fight. And sure enough, I believe it was the eighth or ninth round, you know, just my face didn't hold up. You know, I mean, he did catch me with a barrage of punches, but it wasn't so much that I was hurt. You know, maybe I did stumble a little bit, but it was more like I just couldn't see no more. My face just uh, mm. blew up really bad. It swelled up really bad, and I lost the title. And, uh, you know, you, it's experience in boxing, you know. Like I said, I, I should have never taken that fight too soon. I mean, I had just come back from a Keith Mullins fight three months before, and I'm going through camp. And even, even in camp, my father was saying we should – not take this fight because you know look, look your eyes are swelling up a little bit and sparring with a headgear and of course at that point i'm young and i'm cocky and i said no i want to take it you know at that point the money was well and like i said there was a promise maybe to fight oscar the following year uh which would have been you know uh a fight that would have sold you know they would have you know we were olympians we we're teammates and at that point you know but obviously that never happened i lost the title and that night Keith Mullins, who fought on that card, um, which I, I believe was called Tidal Wave in Atlantic City at the convention center, Keith Mullins knocked out uh, Terry Norris. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. That shows, you know, that shows you how good of a fighter Keith Mullins was. You know, he knocked out terrible Terry Norris, uh, who had been on top for many years and, you know, was a pound for pound one of the best at that point from that era at 154 pounds. You know, yeah, he got knocked out by, uh, by Keith Mullins. And, you know, so Keith Mullins wins the title and I lose the title. So... And, uh, you know, the only one I won that night was, you know, Oscar. He defeated, uh, I believe it was uh, Wilf- Wilfredo Wilfredo Rivera. Rivera. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Puerto Rico. So, you know, I, like I said, I lost the title. And uh, I was away from boxing for about eight months. Let my, fight, my, my face heal ride. And then I came back. And I fought about the floors on ESPN and worked myself up to, to fight for another title. Mm. Title shot. Mm. Um, in your career, you, you had very few losses and only to really high-level guys, Campus, um, Fernando right. Vargas, Jermaine Taylor, Arthur right. Abraham, all really good guys. When you fought yeah. Vargas, he was probably at his peak, right? That was prime yeah. Fernando yeah. Vargas. And how good Absolutely. was he at that, at that point? And, and was he the best guy you fought? Uh, you know, he was probably, you know, technical-wise and just sharp-wise at that point. Like you said, I think he, I fought him at his peak. I mean, you know, we had a hell of a fight. I mean, he was very sharp, uh, very smart, uh, very accurate with his shots. Uh, you know, I, I really trained hard for the fight. And, you know, and, um, 
I just, you know, I could never get to him, you know, with my style. You know, I'm, I'm a tough, durable guy. I can't come forward. And, uh, you know, it was like he was there and he was gone, you know. So he was he was uh, just very elusive at that point and sharp, mm-hmm. you know. And, 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 and I guess not so much powerful, but just, you know, you know, speed is power. So it, it, it was enough power to, to, to daze me, to, to hurt me and get my attention, obviously. Uh, but, you know, he was he was he was really good at that point. That was. I fought him at his best, you know, I fought him at his best and, uh, you know, I try to regain the IBF title. And, you know, as you see my career, I always try to fight the best, you know, the, you know, you're in the, you're in the boxing minute. So I was, I try to fight the best to be the best, you know, um, you know, you know I fought Jermaine Taylor, you know, I fought yeah. Arthur Abraham, but going back to your question, yes, you know, Vargas probably technically sound. Uh, I think he is the best fighter that I ever fought. As as good as his career was, there was a bit of a sense, I think, that it never quite achieved what we thought he was going to achieve, like when he fought you. And and I wonder, do you think, did he fight Tito too early? Did that kind of damage him a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I think I think they rushed him a little bit too fast. You know, like you're right. With the the Tito fight, that's that's what did the Trinidad fight. uh, I mean, that probably you know changed his career, his path of his career, because Mm. you know. Uh, when Tito, uh, when uh, Tito dropped him early in the fight, and you know, and he he, he got him beaten throughout the whole fight. It wasn't just like mm. you know, one punch you get knocked out, that's it, the fight's over. Then you could fight another day, you know. But it was round, round, and round. Uh, so he got a beaten throughout the whole fight, you know. And uh, when fighters get beat up like that, man, it takes a toll on you. It really does. So um, I think that was a mistake that they did. Uh, but the, again, Marcus was a warrior. You can't. You can't take that away from him. Like, uh, you know, fighters, I feel like fighters back then, and even before us, you know, they always wanted to fight the best. And Vargas wanted to fight the best because he wanted to be the best. So he wanted to fight Trinidad. He wanted to fight the Golden Boy. And, uh, but obviously things didn't go his way. And, you know, um, that, that's what the, that, that's what the, the results are. Yeah. Right. So just the other week on Showtime, we saw Rocky Martinez, who had been out of the ring for nearly three years, take on Yuri Orcas Gamboa. Just about everyone assumed Martinez had retired, but of course, retirements in boxing are often only slightly more permanent than in pro wrestling. And you're a case in point, Raul. You left the sport for 19 months after the Vargas loss, retired again briefly after the Taylor fight, and then retired permanently after the Abraham fight. What is it that makes it so hard for professional boxers to pull themselves away from the ring? Well, you know, when I lost to Uruguay campus, you know, uh, you know, your first reaction, I said, I lost. I'm going to retire, you know. Mm-hmm. But that that was, you know, I, I retired a couple of times. I think it's funny now, but that's the way that's the way life is, you know. And then after the Vargas fight, you know, I retired again. Then I came back. I came back as a middleweight because uh, when I when I fought Jermaine, I said, let's, let's try, you know, let's try a middleweight, see what happens, which I was too small for a middleweight. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I was a good size for a junior middleweight. And uh, but for a middleweight, I was too small. But I fought Jermaine Taylor, and I retired again after Jermaine Taylor fight because yeah, I mean, I, obviously I lost. But when I saw Jermaine beat Bernard Hopkins, I'm like, wait a minute, I mean, he just beat Bernard Hopkins. You know, let, let me try this again. So <laughs> I worked myself up to fight for a world title again. You know, that, I was 37 years old. I fought Giovanni Lorenzo on Showtime. Uh, he, at that point, he was an undefeated Dominican fighter. You know, knockout artist. I think he was fighting for main events. He was supposed to beat me with Fodder and Eliminator. The, the winner was supposed to fight you know, Arthur Abraham. And I actually, I upset Giovanni Lorenzo because I wasn't supposed to win that fight. So anyways, I got a shot at the title. 
I worked myself out to fight for the title against Arthur Abraham, who, who was a beast at that yeah. point. I mean, that you know, I've taken good shots. I mean, I, I'm taking good shots, and I take a good shot. I've always had a good chin. I've never been down where not, I'm not, you know, conscious of myself, not knowing where I'm at. I've been stopped, and when there's stopped the fight, of course, I know where I'm at, and I know what happened. I know what city I'm in. I know who I fought, what corner I'm in, everything, you know. But I bet I never been knocked out. On, I, mean, I was never, thank God, I was never knocked out unconscious, not knowing where I was at. So Abraham is the hardest hitting guy I ever fought. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that, that guy, could, he could crack. He could hit. I mean, if you see, you've seen him knock guys out. I mean, look what he did to Dwayne Taylor. Uh, he, you know, he's done a lot to, he's knocked out a lot of fighters. You know, he knocked out a lot of fighters. So he's got that, that one punch power. I trained really hard for that fight. Um, you know, a lot of the, there's a lot of behind the scenes things that happen, like always with fighters. You know, I'm not making excuses. You know, but you know, the fight was canceled. The the, the I don't know if you guys know the history on that fight, but the fight was canceled um, the day of the fight uh, after the weigh-in. I remember that point. Uh, the promoter who I was fighting for, Liam Margulies from Warriors Boxing, comes in, knocks on my door. He's like, the "Fight's off." I'm like, "What?" Hmm. You know, and I was resting. I'm like, well, "What do you mean the fight's off?" He's like. Abraham's sick. He's got a, a cold or a flu, and the fight's not going to happen. So we had to fly back to the states, you know, regroup and you know, uh, take off of the training for a whole week and restart again. You know, so all that messes you up, and then go back again to to Germany for and a month later. You know, where they reset the date again. So not taking it away from me. Abraham was a beast. I mean, I, I hit that guy with everything. I, I I hit him with some good body shots. I. Um, he, he was just uh, a train wreck. He was strong. He was strong. And, uh, you know, after the sixth round, my, my, my dad said, you know, I'm just going to stop the fight. You know, there, nothing's happening. Why get hurt? Why take further damage? And, you know, I called it a career. After that, I retired. And, uh, you know, thank God that, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I got my senses, you know, because boxing is a tough sport. And I see a lot of fighters. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to mention any names. I see a lot of fighters. I talk to a lot of fighters that are from the past retired. And, and, um, and even now, you know, they're still fighting. And, you know, you notice, you know, how the punches have, you know, taken effect. They've taken a toll through the years. I mean, that's just the, the, the nature of the sport. It's a tough sport. You know, that's why, you know, you, you got to, you know, like I tell my kids, you know, you got to be dedicated. You, you got to be disciplined. You got to make weight on time. Uh, train hard. Don't cut any corners. You know, same old, same old stuff you always hear. But, you know, sometimes fighters tend to veer off and not follow the right direction, you know, instructions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why... You know, things happen or they get hurt. And, and sometimes it's just that's the kind of sport it is. You know, it's a, t- it's a tough sport and it's a brutal sport, but it's a beautiful sport. You know, it's done a lot of good things for me. I mean, uh, I, I've done a lot. Boxing has given me a lot. You're sort of following on from that. You know, you mentioned how, as we all know, the kind of impacts. And we've and all of us who've spent time around retired boxers are aware, exactly aware of what you're talking about. Um, and... A couple of weeks ago, we were made very aware again of one of the other dangers in the sport. We had, you know, two ring deaths, one in Maryland, one in Argentina. Um, Those things are rare, but they're obviously a possibility. It's the nature of the sport. Um, And I'm curious, you know, you probably have a broader view of the sport than anyone, really. Having been a fighter, being ringside now at fights, as we mentioned, you've got a couple sons who are boxing. And I'm... It's a difficult question, but I'm sure it's one you consider a lot anyway. Um, I mean, how do you, as someone who wears all these hats, know so well the dangers of the sport, balance your love for the sport with your awareness of the risks that it entails? Oh, man, it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a different view 
what you know me as a broadcaster now you know and i've been you know with showtime now for like seven years but even before that i, I you know my broadcaster career started a long time ago you know as a broadcaster you know you get a different view from down you know from from ringside you know have mm. i questioned myself like and how did I do this sport for so many years? Like, I mean, yes, mm. I have. I do. I do. I really mm. do. And sometimes I see, like, me as a fighter, you know, I like to see the, the, the expression on fighters, you know, like how they express themselves, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever faces they make, uh, whatever noises they make, um, you know, when they're, you know, they ran out of gas. Uh, I look at I look at fights sometimes and, you know, I could, I could say sometimes, man, that fight could have been stopped earlier. You know, not to blame anybody, you know, but I'm just saying that fight could have stopped earlier. Or if a guy is getting beat down, you know, for six rounds and there's nothing going, there's nothing happening, and he ain't got a chance. I mean, why not stop the fight? Yeah. But you know, I'm not a referee. I'm not. I'm not a judge. I'm not. I'm not the commission. I'm not. But I'm just saying. I feel like, you know, by looking at fighters' expressions, uh, their faces, and uh, the way they react, the way they act, the way they, you know, when you ask them questions in the corner. Um, you know, sometimes they come out and they get in survival mode. They don't do nothing. You know, if I had a fighter like that, I, I, you know, I would, I would stop a fight. I wouldn't let him continue. Um, but again, like, you know, it's, 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 it's a tough sport, man. I try to say that. I keep saying that and I keep repeating myself to the sport, uh, because, but when you're on top, when, you know, winning is, is, is the best, you know, winning a world title, uh, just winning a fight, uh. It, it's it's a good feeling, you know. But you know, when you're in there, and like I, like I said, I said from down here now, it's it's a brutal sport. Um, that's why I emphasize on my loved ones, which are my kids. I mean, do I get nervous? Yeah, I get I get really yeah. nervous. I get scared, you know, especially when accidents do happen, like the ones that happened not too long ago. Mm. I, I'm you know, move your head, block punches, don't you know, don't take unnecessary shots, and you know, even in sparring, you know, in sparring like. Don't take shots just to take shots. Don't try to be a bully and try to be all tough and just take a shot to take a shot. Move your head, block shots, you know, uh, train hard, be in great shape, you know. Uh, don't lose, you know, 20 pounds in one week. Yeah. Um, all that stuff, you know, just be conscious of that. Is it harder watching them than it was to do it yourself? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, honestly, yeah. Sometimes I wish I could do it for them. I still wish I'm already... <laughs> I feel like I'm not an old man, but, you know, I can still, you know, hit the heavy bag and do some sparring. But, you know, sometimes like, I feel like going in there for them because, uh, I mean, they're my blood. They're my kids, man. And it yeah. hurts, you know, it hurts to uh, see them in there. But they, the, the thing about it is, you know, and I let people know this, like, they box because they want to box. They they right. want to try it. Not because I put them in boxing or my dad puts them in boxing or, or we want them to box. We're, we're you know, we're not like, you know, kind of people that, oh, you got to box because I was a fighter. No, they, they want to do it. They want to try it. Um, you know, I have a, I have a two-year-old, uh, Liam. You know, he's got boxing gloves. He's got a little heavy bag, and he's always, like, <laughs> running around, like, sh- 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 you know, like, doing the boxing noises. And uh, he might want to box one day, you know. But And if he does, yeah, I got to support him. I got to, you know, right. I, I, if, if that's what he wants. But I know I, I'm going to try to keep him away from the boxing as long as I can until I just can't anymore. So I mean, and and maybe maybe he'll go a different route. You know, I mean, right? Soccer and baseball. Uh, you know, go to school, whatever. You know, but even 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 in baseball, I mean, you saw the guy that got hit by a baseball yeah. a while ago, you know, the, the pitcher. So I think I believe it hit his forearm, and then he 
Yeah, I mean, can you imagine a baseball hitting you like that? That's Chase, yeah. that's gonna cause some problems too. So every everything, you know, it's, it's a sport. Right. So we let our listeners know a couple of days ago that you were going to be on the podcast, and we asked them to send in questions for you if they had any. So I'm going to read you this one from a listener. Uh, Ernie Zotz writes, would be interesting to hear Raul's thoughts on slash pick for the Andrew Ruiz Jr. versus Anthony Joshua rematch later this year. What do you think, Raul? Do you favor Ruiz to repeat, or will Joshua pull off a Lewis Rockman rematch revenge situation? I think Ruiz has a very really big chance of winning again. I really think Ruiz has a big chance of winning. I mean, the way I saw Anthony Joshua in Madison Square Garden, you know, I mean, obviously he was out of his comfort zone. You could tell, you know. Mm. And I mean, this guy used to, be, you know, Joshua used to hitting guys and they go, you know, he's just used to beating up on guys and they go. And obviously it wasn't like that for, for with, you know, when he fought Andy Ruiz, you know, he, he hit him and, you know, and he hit him and he went down, he got back up and, and Ruiz retaliated, you know, and, uh, it has a lot to do with, I, this is my opinion, you know, Andy, Andy Ruiz, I remember I used to co- cover him early in his career when he was a top rank, and I was doing stuff with Fox Deportes in Spanish, and uh, I always saw him like, you know, he, he's pretty, he's very fast for heavyweight, he's mm-hmm. very fast, uh, and you know, the, he had a lot of amateur uh, fights, I believe he had close to 200 amateur fights. And, you know, started boxing when he was young. So I believe that that has a lot to do, you know, with his win, you know, his amateur background. Anthony Joshua didn't, didn't have as many amateur fights right. as he did. You know, and he, started, he got a late start in boxing. You know, I think it was 18, 20 years old. Yep. To me, that has a lot to do with it. Uh, the experience, you know. I, I think uh, Andy Ruiz has been put in situations that, Maybe Joshua had never been put in before, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, again, I go back to the amateur experience. And do I believe that he could beat him again? Yes, I, I, I really believe that he could pull it out again. I really think so. Mm-hmm. I really think so, especially, you know, especially if the fight is here in the States. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, you know, every, you know, it's happened before to other fighters, other top fighters. Uh, when they go over there on the other side of the, of the world, you know, it's hard to win over there. It's hard to win. Very mm-hmm. few have done it. I mean, Errol Spence did it. Earl Spence did it. I mean, he, he's done it before, but very few don't do it. And sometimes, you know, the fights, you know, they, they uh, sometimes they, they have close fights, but they just don't get decisions too. You know, right. it, it, it happens. But I, I, I really think uh, Andy Ruiz can pull it out again. Yes, yeah. I mean, that, that's my answer. You know, you mentioned you, you've been doing commentary for a long time. You've been with Showtime for seven years. And, and you're ringside for every Showtime fight. you part of the Spanish broadcast for Showtime Championship Boxing and an English for Showbox. And I'm wondering, yeah. they're all very different types of events. Do you have any preference or, or do you just love them both? I love them both, you know, because at Showbox, and I'm lucky, you know, I'm lucky to work with Barry Thompson and Steve Farhood. I mean, they're great people. Uh, I mean, they're Hall of Famers, you know, Barry Thompson. He's like my mentor, you know, he very, you know, I don't know Barry forever. <laughs> he don't like to hear that because that makes him feel older, you know, but, but Hey, that, that means I'm getting old too, you know, but Barry used to cover me back in the, my Olympic days, you know, my, my amateur days, you know, back in the Olympic festival, him and Al Bernstein used to cover me on ESPN. We used to, have, used to televise the tournament. So that's how, you know, that's how back we go. And then, and then Steve used to tell me when he used to uh, write for uh, the, the magazine, uh, KO magazine, I bet. So we, we go way back, and, you know, I had built a really good relationship with them. And, I mean, I think we're a great team. I think we, we work great together. There's no egos. I mean, we complement each other. I think we're, I mean, I, I just love working with them. And 
being on Showbox, you you see guys, you know, up and coming prospects. Like we always see them, you know, they they they're undefeated, and sometimes they they lose that zero, you know, and uh, uh, you see a lot of talent on there. You see a lot of guys that came through there that went on to. Uh, become world champions, you know. So I love doing the Showbox series and then uh, and working with Barry and Steve. And then in Spanish, you know, I work uh, with Alejandro Luna, who's very well known in the Spanish industry. You know, he's a great guy, and uh, and I learned a lot from him too. You know, so I hit it both ways, Spanish and English. And and of course, you know, doing the Spanish, you're at, at, at every big event, all the big fights. Uh, it makes it easier to cover the big fights because you know the names. Uh, the studying is not as much as. You know, for showbox, sometimes you 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 got some prospects that you don't know much about, so you really got to study. You got to watch them on tape. You read their bios and all that. And I, I do my studying because I I treat every uh, every showbox event and every show championship event I treat it like like a like a fight. You know, when right. I was a fighter, so you know I, I I prepare myself to my fullest. I try to be the best, and I try to uh, give the audience uh, my perspective. Uh, you know, as a ex fighter, you know. Uh, what they have to do and, you know, what tactics and, you know, just uh, how boxers feeling and what, you know, how the fight is going. And, you know, working with Barry and Steve, it makes it a lot easier. Well, that, that was very nice what you said about Barry and Steve. But, you know, you don't have to be politically correct here. Tell us the truth. When the cameras go off, Steve and Barry are both complete assholes, right? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. Hey, if, if if that was true, if that was true, I would say that. And, and okay. they know because I'm a pretty. Everybody knows me. Everybody, every, you know, I don't know how you guys see me, but uh, but I'm a pretty blunt guy. You know, I'm a pretty uh, outspoken guy. Like I, I, I pretty much tell it like how it is. Um, so yeah, if if I thought Steve and Barry were assholes, uh, no, unfortunately not, man. They're the nicest people, man. They're they're great people. Like I said, I I love working with them and. That's it. We're not going to make this about Barry and Steve now. We're supposed to make it about me. So. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> okay. We'll ask them about you when they're on that. That's right. enough, that's exactly. enough talking, okay? That's enough talking about Barry and Steve. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Raul, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great. Really enjoyed it. And uh, I think viewers can see you on Showbox again in a few weeks. I think we've got another card coming up soon. So, um, yes. thanks so very much for joining us. And uh, all the very best to you, my friend. Thank you guys, and uh, always good to be on. And uh, you know, I, I follow you guys. I mean, I see our show, and I look forward to seeing the, the the rest of the shows in the future. Thank you. Great stuff there from Raul. Uh, let's shift gears now and talk about this past weekend's fights. Uh, not a ton to cover, uh, but the headliner was a Fox triple header on Saturday night that was surprisingly eventful. In the main event. Adam Kalnatsky and Chris Ariola slugged it out for 12 entertaining rounds, but we'll hold all of our dad bod jokes for just a moment and talk first about the two upsets on the undercard. I certainly didn't see either of these coming. Uh, Wale Omatoso dropped Curtis Stevens in each of the first three rounds, and the fight was stopped in round three after the third knockdown. And wow, all I can say is Stevens' punched resistance is gone. Uh, these didn't look like huge shots, at least not the first two, but Every time Omatoso touched him, he went down. And in a bigger upset, maybe even a bigger upset than Ruiz Joshua on paper, Jean-Pascal handed Marcus Brown his first loss by eighth-round technical decision, scoring three knockdowns to eke it out, despite losing almost every second of the fight in which he wasn't knocking (laughs) Brown down. Uh, We were very dismissive of Pascal's chances last week, so I assume you were as stunned as I was by the way this unfolded. Kieran, quick thoughts on Pascal Brown and Omatoso Stevens? 
you know, honestly, not only was I dismissive of Pascal's chances, I was a little worried for him, actually, to tell yeah. you the truth. I mean, you know, as we've, we've seen before, up close, Brown's a big, big, strong guy. And uh, I, I did fear a little for the kind of beating he might dish out here, uh, even as I was kind of rooting for Pascal to somehow manage to lay a smackdown on him. Um, and indeed, for those first few rounds, it wasn't looking good, even though if it, it wasn't quite as bad as I feared, it certainly wasn't looking good. And then, wham, Brown just walked into that sort of haymaker of an overhand right hand. And then a few rounds later, he walked into the exact same punch. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't as if there was anything subtle about what Pascal was doing. He, like, it looks like all his basic form and style is gone and he was just swinging for the fences and hit the fences um (laughs) several times um i was a little worried uh when the fight was stopped because i don't know how i feel about the scoring of the partially completed round thing yeah i'm generally not a fan or yeah at least maybe there should be a rule that the round has to get at least two minutes in before you score it something like that yeah and and i was a little nervous because there was no way I think that you could have scored the first seven rounds anyway, other than what is it, 65, 65, right? Like five rounds had to have gone to Brown mm-hmm. and then Pascal had to have got the other two rounds with those extra points for the knockdown. But I was like, Oh God, are they going to score this 30 seconds of round for Brown? <laughs> but, uh, but no, but uh, there you go. So, you know, on the bright side, Someone who I've always found to be a pretty decent guy got a win. And also on the bright side, a guy who has four times in the last 18 months or so been arrested for domestic violence issues uh, didn't win. Um, mm. By the way, talking of this, I completely missed this. I hadn't heard about this till afterwards. I don't know if you knew this, but at the pre-fight presser. So I guess in a lot of the build up to this, Brown was saying that Pascal was go- he was going to knock Pascal out. And for whatever reason, at the final pre-fight presser. He, he, you know, Pascal was trying to goad him into repeating that and he wouldn't do it. So apparently Hmm. Pascal takes out a wig and puts it on and goes, if I wear this and I look like a woman, are you going to promise the world you're going to knock out? Oh, wow. I'm like, damn. (laughs) So I love you for that alone, Jean-Pascal. And also, by the way, as I was expecting this to be a Jean-Pascal career retrospective segment, but I guess it wasn't quite. Jean-Pascal was the very first interview I did on camera for HBO. And after we had finished it, Albert Kim, our cameraman, realized that for whatever reason, the audio just wasn't working. We hadn't picked up any of it. And we ran around the corner and said, John, we're really, really sorry, but it didn't work. And he goes, OK. And he comes back. Mm. And he did the whole interview again, word for word. It was amazing. Wow. So I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Jean Pascal. So yeah, that's cool. Um, the not so bright side, of course, is that this means Pascal is probably going to stick around for a while um, and end up taking some more punches. So, um, and so look, okay, so he proved us wrong, Pascal. I know we expressed doubts and concerns about him, but maybe he showed he isn't quite done yet. But yeah, you're right. Curtis Stevens is D-U-N done. Good Lord. Um, looks like just tap him clean and he goes. I mean, he really does need to hang them up it seems because yeah he gets hit clean he's just gonna go down i mean i was ringside when he got sent halfway out the ring by uh uh, david lemieux a couple years ago and and even though it was one of those things where the full gravity of it just didn't seem to come across on tv we were all standing and staring ringside just looking at his chest making sure he was breathing after that and um whatever that did to his chin it just hasn't repaired has it i mean that is he that was he's done yeah. he's done what can i say 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking with, with Stevens that it's a combination of two things, and that's one of them is just getting brutally knocked out by by David Lemieux seems to have done lasting damage to his ability to take a punch. And then the other thing was that he was coming back down in weight, which uh, we've right. seen we've seen a few times that that can have deleterious effects. So uh, between those two things, in in hindsight it makes perfect sense that he would suddenly be unable to take a punch. And uh, yeah, he is really unable to take a punch. Um, but as for Brown, yeah, he, he obviously needs to work on defending against the counter right hand. Cause that was <laughs> the, the single punch that uh, swung the fight for Pascal on multiple occasions. Um, and he got a little un- unlucky with the head clash uh, in right. that, you know, the fight didn't get to go all the way to its con- natural conclusion. Yeah. But that's kind of the world evening things out for the win he didn't deserve over Hot Rod Kalajic several years ago. And uh, you can uh, drop the word karma in there if you want. <laughs> um, it's a great win for Pascal. Maybe a little fluky. Like, I don't take it as a sign that he has a ton right. left. Um, but I guess what he showed, at least, is he can still be dangerous when he lets his hands go. And th- and that's sort of been the thing with him in recent years. There have been a lot of fights where he just wasn't really letting his hands go enough. So this is kind of a reminder, hey, let those big punches fly. Good things can happen. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, it's funny. I, there was a shot of, of go back to the Stevens fight that just before like the official announcement at the end where he looked very contemplative and looked like a man who was like i i don't know what's gonna happen now like he, he yep. certainly looked like a man who is it's got to be devastating when you're a boxer and it just it's just suddenly gone like that it must be really really tough it's it's not a business to hang around in um if if uh, if it's, things aren't quite working for you um uh, and as you mentioned, we had uh, heavyweights in the main event, Kanachki winning a wide unanimous decision over Ariola in a fight that broke the all-time CompuBox record for heavyweights in terms of punches being thrown, which I assume was held by Abayabuchi and Tua. I believe so, yes. Yeah. Um, I would never have imagined that these two would break the record of those two, but uh, there was the most combined punches thrown, 2,172, and landed, 667. And Ariola set the individual heavyweight record for with 1,125 punches thrown, and Konachki was fifth all-time with 1,047. So, you know, again, we talked, you know, uh, as with Curtis Stevens about whether it's the end of the road, uh, Ariola had said before the fight that he would retire if he didn't win. He hinted at it again afterwards, despite that impressive performance and that impressive number. Against that, of course, you know, the, the figures, I think, don't, you know, really reflect the nature of what was going in there. I mean, Ariola, not for the first time, did take quite a lot of pretty heavy punches from a guy who never stopped coming. I mean, he just comes across as like this bald Polish Terminator Konachki. I mean, he was just relentless, wasn't he? I, I thought his, his his choice of punches was impressive. Just the, the sheer thudding heaviness of them was impressive. Um, what do you think? What do you think about whether Ariola should or should not retire? And, and what about Konachki? What did you think of him? And where do you see him going from here? Well, first off, hats off to these guys for a spirited effort. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I did make a crack on Twitter about wishing they were they were wearing shirts. Uh, and uh, th- there were times when I thought, you know, gee, this would be a great fight for the radio era. Um, but uh, <laughs> they, they, they gave all they had and put on a really fun show. I will say, though, that Kanatsky, um, he slowed down a lot after the early mm. rounds, not in terms of output, but just in terms of the speed of his hands and having any snap at all on his mm. punches. He, he's 
clearly carrying around excess weight. Um, I I think he's a fairly ordinary talent. I, okay. I don't see him doing well against any real top 10 heavyweights. Maybe he's the best of that next tier, that sort of just outside the top 10 sort of th- those guys. But I, I just, I don't see him doing great at the next level. But he has a following. He's yep. undefeated. He makes good fights. So I imagine he will get a shot at a belt before too long. I just kind of imagine it won't go too well. Um, Perhaps he's the 2019 version of 2009's Chris Ariola. Ah, interesting. Yeah, uh-huh. he, he could be something uh-huh. like that, who was certainly Ariola got his opportunities for that very reason, that he was fun to watch and had a nice record and had some fans and, uh, yeah, came up short in all of those opportunities. Yeah, that, that may well be the path that Konachki's on. Um as for Ariola and where he goes from here and that retirement question, I, I felt like the, the interviewer on Fox, Heidi Androll, that her question kind of missed the point, which she said, she said something to the effect of, I guess you can't retire now after a good performance like mm. this. Well, he didn't win. He didn't come all that close to winning. Um, and this was not, in my view, an, an elite fighter that he lost to. And Ariola showed really bad defense and took a ton of punches. A ton. I thought all things considered, this was a perfect performance to go out on. Uh, You know, he he fought with pride, gave people something good to remember him by, while I think, based on the way he answered that question and the look on his face, I feel like he mostly proved to himself that he's not going to beat any serious heavyweight contenders, and he's going to take a lot of punches futilely trying to do so. Um, I don't know if he will retire off this, but I like that he's at least considering it. And I think it would be a fine decision if that's where he lands. Yeah, I was thinking the very same thing, talking about Stevens looking very contemplative. He definitely, that look on his face, it was more than the words that he spoke. It was, it looked as if this sort of sense of realization was coming over him that perhaps he'd gone into like, yeah, I I think I'm probably done actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, one other fight to discuss. Uh, earlier on Saturday, uh, Mickey Conlon thrilled a passionate Belfast crowd with a ninth-round stoppage of Argentina's Diego Alberto Ruiz. The fight looked destined to go the distance until Conlon dropped Ruiz with a body shot in that conclusive ninth round. Conlon, who moves to 12-0 and with seven knockouts, said afterward that this is just the start, and promoter Bob Arum claimed he would look to position his fighter for a world title shot next year. Based on Saturday's performance, how close is he to indeed competing for a major title? So, I mean, he's definitely improved and he's definitely improving. Um, This was the most well-rounded by far of the fights of his that I've seen. I haven't seen all of them, but um, I was ringside for his pro debut and there was all this hype going into it. And then the bell rang and there was a sense of, oh, crap, he can't even fight. Um, But now he he clearly can. Uh, uh, The question is, I think... Is he, you know, is he improving enough and is he improving fast enough to be, you know, a truly world level fighter? Um, I think he's far short of guys like Leo Santa Cruz or, or Josh Warrington. Um, I actually don't even think he's the best 2016 Olympian fighting in the featherweight division and posting a record of 12 and 0 with seven <laughs> KOs. Um, I, do, I, I think Shakur Stevenson is way ahead of him at the moment. But yeah, I but agree. It, yeah, but it was a very solid performance nonetheless. Um, Conan, he showed a lot of. I thought good punch variety. He worked the body well, switched efficiently from orthodox to southpaw. Um, he did 
need the stoppage. I think if the stoppage hadn't happened, it would have felt like a bit of an underwhelming, disappointing performance. But, um, you know, I think it's, I think Aram's right to talk about next year. Next year does feel like it would be the make or break year for him. If he's going to step up to that level, it, it should be then. He's 28 almost. So, it's you know, it's not like he has a huge amount of time on his hand. I guess, I don't know what their relationship is like, but I assume an obvious ideal scenario is that he ends up if he is going to fight for a world title, would be if Carl Frampton wins back a title and and those two meet in I, I, the, that fight would be of a magnitude in Belfast that I don't think we in the United States can even truly comprehend. Hmm. Um, so you know that that would be his opportunity. Oh, and by the way, well done to referee Michael Ortega for using common sense during this fight and not being overly officious. At one stage, relatively early, uh, Conlon uh, rabbit punched Ruiz, who was trying to duck out of the way of the fight, and that caused Ruiz's father to just become apoplectic with rage and to leap up onto the ring apron and wave his towel to show how angry he was. Mm. And uh, well done for Ortega for being switched on enough to realize that Daddy Ruiz apparently didn't realize what that actually symbolized. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and to shoo him off the apron uh, instead of assuming that he was giving up. So uh, anyway, talking of Carl Frampton, mm -hmm. he returns next weekend on ESPN Plus from Philadelphia. Uh, you ever been to Philadelphia there? Any, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I've, I've, I've heard it's a, a lovely town full of great yeah. sports fans. Uh, is that right? Okay, very good. Uh, where he, uh, uh, very sporting and, and caring of their sporting idols, I'm sure. And yeah, especially if you, if you, and the if, opposition team. That's what I was just going to say. If you come in to support your team from out of town, we will be nothing but graceful. <laughs> So anyway, Carl Frampton will take on Emmanuel Dominguez over 10 rounds of featherweight action, um, while in the co-main event, Jason Sosa fights Haskell Lydell Rhodes, um, who sounds like a Harvard graduate rather than a fighter, <laughs> actually. Uh, on the same night over on DAZN, uh, an interesting-looking crossroads fight sees rising welterweight prospect Virgil Ortiz Jr. take on Antonio Orozco over 10, with a bantamweight co-main that features Joshua Franco and Oscar Negrete go at it for the third time in about 10 months. They've had a draw and a split decision. Um, what leaps out at you there out of those fights, if anything? Ortiz Orozco is definitely the most yeah. interesting fight of the bunch, an elite prospect taking on his toughest test. Uh, Orozco is a good fighter. His only loss is to Jose Ramirez. So that's a very solid matchup that'll tell us a thing or two about Virgil Ortiz. The Philly show doesn't do as much for me. Frampton is slightly on the downside, it would seem. Uh, but even so, he appears to be in pretty safe here with Dominguez. Um, I could see the Sosa Rhodes fight maybe stealing the show. You know, that has uh, sort of that that memorable Philly club fight kind of potential to it. But all in all, the slow August continues. Uh, yeah. Looking ahead, the last two weekends of the month, it will pick up a bit. But for now, again... I implore everyone, get out and have a life away from boxing <laughs> while you can. Uh, okay, time to look at some of the news from the broader boxing world. And we begin with an announcement of a fight that was met with less than universal enthusiasm. Tyson Fury is scheduled to fight Sweden's Otto Wallin on September 14th at either the MGM Grand or T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. I will quote my old boss, Nigel Collins, on Twitter, who summed it up with a 17-character tweet. Otto Valin, question mark, WTF, exclamation point. Um, <laughs> listeners will recall that Valin fought on Showtime in April against Nick Kisner, but the result was a first round no contest due to a head clash, so we barely got a look at Valin. Then he was supposed to fight BJ Flores on Showbox, and the fight was canceled due to a medical issue for Flores. So two scheduled fights in the U.S., just one round of ring time, no wins, no losses, 
and he's just skipping straight to a fight against arguably the best heavyweight in the world. I guess Faline shows more promise than Tom Schwartz, <laughs> I guess. Uh, but the two of them, back to back, this is not the 2019 campaign yeah. we were expecting from Tyson Fury. Uh, how are you feeling, Kieran, about Fury versus Otto Valine? So it's funny. So maybe it's because I've sat down and looked at tape and done prep on the guy twice mm-hmm. for, and for a whole round. But I, my initial response wasn't necessarily as, as negative. Like a lot of people were like, who the hell is Otto Valine? Because they hadn't had a chance to see him. Right. Whereas we've had to sit down and watch tape. And I'm like, oh, he's actually pretty good. He's not too bad. He's a solid boxer. He's got a good jab and a good power punch. Um, but look, yes, the, the problem so far is he's looked pretty good against opponents who are nowhere like Tyson Fury. Um, and... I have, as does anyone in boxing with any common sense, uh, have a lot of respect for Gordon Hall here at Showtime. And twice Gordon has booked Valine on Showtime this year. And twice Gordon has felt that the appropriate level of opposition for Otto Valine was Nick Kisner and BJ Flores. Right. And that says a lot about where those in the know feel Otto Valine is right now. It's a very big leap from that uh, to Tyson Fury, even if he'd actually had the fights go ahead. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, Fury's style and skill set is entirely different. Um, boy, Fury's career, it's its such an enigma, it's, especially mm-hmm. since he's come back. He comes back after a couple of years away and he fights this guy, Sefir Seferi, who literally looked happy to be there um, and really was no kind of contest. And he followed that up with... Francisco Pineda, who is somewhat better, but he didn't look remarkable while scoring an easy win. Then he leaps from that all the way up to Deontay Wilder, somehow outboxes Deontay Wilder for eight or nine rounds out of 12, rises from the dead in the final round, looks absolutely incredible, and then goes back to fighting Tom Schwartz and Otto Valin. It's just weird. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like he's dialed in for his really big fights and just you know, doesn't feel compelled to to keep himself at another level in between. And it, he's got such a weird, unique style that you almost feel like you can get away with it. Um, but, you know, it, it's not... It's not Dominic Brazil and Luis Ortiz in terms of stay busy fights, that's for sure. So Right. And and remember how down people, some people were on Dominic Brazil, like that. Oh, that's yeah. not you compare him to some of the guys that some of the other heavyweights have fought, specifically the guys Tyson Fury is picking. Dominic Brazil is a very proven, very worthy contender compared yeah. to some of these guys. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. All very peculiar. Anyway, um, Fury is making news for who he is fighting. Uh, some fighters are still making news for who they're not fighting. And a lot of that's happening in the middleweight division. And the man really respons- responsible for a lot of this uncertainty is, of course, Canelo Alvarez. Yes, it is time for our popular weekly segment. Who in the world is Canelo fighting this week? Um <laughs> So first, so over the last few weeks, it was assumed it was going to be Gennady Golovkin. Uh, many podcasts ago, you said, is it acceptable for Canelo to fight any other middleweight in the fall? And I said, no, <laughs> I thundered. Um, so we assumed it would be Golovkin, but then it wasn't. Then it looked like it might be Jaime Munguia for a little while until it wasn't. Then there was excitement about it being Sergei Kovalev until it wasn't. Um, more, most recently, it looked like the foreplay was pretty serious with Sergei Derevyanchenko, who is a mandatory for one of the alphabet bodies. But despite discussions being serious and deadlines being extended, uh, a deal could not be struck. And that alphabet body stripped Canelo of that belt, which prompted a chiding tweet from Canelo to his promoter's golden boy, who in return circled the wagons and pointed the figure at said alphabet body. Um, So now the latest is that Canelo reportedly 
is focusing on Demetrius Andrade, which would indeed be a dangerous matchup and an intriguing fight if it happens, which now seemingly leaves Golovkin to take on Derevianchenko for a vacant belt, while Monria reportedly is close to a deal uh, to face Jesse Vargas, uh, possibly also on September 14th, the same night Furious fighting Valine. Kovalev, meanwhile is still on course to defend his light heavyweight belt against Anthony Yardi in Russia on August 24th, if he can stay out of trouble, which, based on the recent revelation that he was removed from a flight after harassing a female passenger and, in the ultimate classy move, throwing money at her, (laughs) is not a given. So, given all that, no pressure here, Eric. Uh, Please explain all of this for us and put a nice tidy bow on it. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'll first note that I still don't believe for a second that Canelo will face Andrade next. Uh, I I just don't. I know they're talking about that. I just don't see him going down that stylistic route at this point. Um, I could still see Golden Boy swooping in with a deal to get Munguia back to the table uh, for Canelo. I could see that happening. Um, As for the stripping of the alphabet belt, Whatever. I don't care who has what belt, and I never will. Uh, And as we discussed last week, that Canelo-Derevianchenko matchup didn't really do much for us anyway. Um, At this point, it is what it is. I don't think Canelo is going to have a big fight in the second half of the year, and DAZN just kind of needs to let him fight whoever and then focus on getting Canelo and Triple G to the table for May 2020. Um, Golovkin-Derevianchenko, fine, I guess. Again, I'm not like super psyched about it, but for whatever reason, maybe that's a, a little more appealing than Canelo against Derevianchenko, just because Golovkin still kind of has some comebacking to do. And Kovalev, boy, this feels like it's all building toward him losing to Yardi in Russia and blowing the whole thing. Doesn't um, it? Yeah, the, the wheels are really coming off, and we like the folks at main events. We want to see them do well. Kovalev is their most high-profile, high-earning fighter. I imagine there are a lot of closed door strategy meetings where it's just how do we steer this guy away from trouble and into one last huge payday? Uh, It's just about cash out time with Sergey Kovalev, I would think. I picture Kathy Duva just sitting at her desk and just putting her head in her hands and just going, oh, Sergey, like every day. (laughs) Right. Pretty much. (laughs) Every new development. Head, hands. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, Okay, so we've uh, looked at a fight that's happening and some fights that may or may not happen. Now let's finish the news segment by taking another look at one fight that did happen, even though plenty now feel that maybe it shouldn't have. We reported last week that Dillian White had tested positive for a steroid metabolite prior to his fight with Oscar Rivas and that the fight had gone ahead after White had appealed to a specially convened panel, even though Rivas and his people knew nothing of it. Uh, That test was conducted by the United Kingdom Anti-Doping Authority, or UCAD, uh, but it now turns out that pre- and post-tests conducted by VADA, which is generally considered the gold standard, return negative samples. So what's going on, and has White been unfairly maligned, Kieran? Uh, Not necessarily, there's still a lot of explaining to do. Um, he did fail that test, apparently, the UCAD test. The the, the the VADA pre- and post-fight tests were like a month after the UCAD one, but it turns out that he also passed a VADA test from just a couple of days before that UCAD one. Hmm. Um, so don't really know what's going on there, and, and we still need to learn about the UCAD B sample and what that says. But, you know, still, it's worth bringing it back 
to the discussion that we had last week because it's still a big deal. The bigger issue that really that we really went off on both of us last week was the process here. Yes. The fact that everybody involved knew White had failed a drug test except for Rivas and his team. And as we said last week, that may be UCAD policy and process and thus British Boxing Border Control policy and process. And that may be the right approach to take, as I said last week, for track and field. I'm not beating up on track and field. I love track. But still, there's it's just... If that is the process for boxing, it shouldn't be, um, you know, and maybe you could make the case, you know, especially if it turns out that, say, this sample was a false positive with Dillian White. Maybe you could make the case there's a risk in the case of a false positive that you bring the opponent into it and he says, no, I'm not fighting this guy. He pulls out and then the guy with the false positive is unfairly denied a fight and loses money and opportunity. And obviously we would hate for that to happen. But my God, the repercussions of that are nothing compared to the potential repercussions of if the test held up and the fighter who tested positive severely hurt his opponent mm. and nobody in the opponent's team knew that the guy had failed the test. So, look, I mean, I'm just repeating really what I said last week, but just the whole nature of the, of the way it went down is just so appalling to me. Um, it, it just seems they're applying a standardized process that not only doesn't fit boxing, but it's potentially highly dangerous in boxing. I, I like Dylan White. We had a nice interview with him yeah. back in January, and, and I hope it is a false positive and he's able to clear his name. But I still think UCAD and the boxing board did Oscar Rivas wrong here. Agree. All right. So with so few fights to preview or review, uh, we asked you to hit us up with some mailbag questions and you delivered. So many thanks for that. And we start with an interesting one from... Rich Melv, or perhaps Rich Me LV, um, at Rich Melv One or Rich Me LV One. Well, it seems very familiar. I'm pretty sure he's written into previous mailbags. I think. Um, anyway, he uh, he didn't write to you. He wrote to me. Um, hi, Kieran. Hello. Love your podcasting, sir, and I hope you're looking forward to the Premier League season. Can the Reds go all the way in the league? Uh, that would be the European champion Liverpool Football Club Reds you're talking about there. And yeah, of course they will. Um, anyway, I'm sure you've covered scoring ideas before across the Showtime and HBO podcasts. But would love to have your thoughts on this. And he then provided uh, quite a detailed idea for a different way to look at scoring a fight. Uh, forgive me, I'm going to skate over some of the details, but essentially... He proposes a two-points-must system to replace a 10-point-must one and suggests, essentially, that a round be scored 2-2 if it's too close to call, 2-1.5 if a judge thinks one fighter just knocked the round, 2-1 if it's a clear win or, or a close round with a flash knockdown, and 2 to 0 0.5 if it's a clear round featuring heavy dominance or, or, or a knockdown. You know, in other words, recognizing that not all 10-9 rounds are the same, and part of the reason why people get upset with some scoring is you can lose six rounds badly and just win six rounds and get a get a draw under the present right. system um so look eric as he says it certainly is a topic we've covered before it's one that is regularly discussed and comes up especially after a bad decision or two um but it is worth periodically revisiting i think and he's clearly put a lot of intelligent thought into this um what are your thoughts about this sort of approach and indeed some of the other changes to the system that folks have proposed over the years because there have been many Yes, uh, there have. But I'll first note that the, the main reason the 10-point system has prevailed over there was at one point a five-point system a long time right. ago or, or over a two-point system like this is because people are quite simple and they like flashing lights and bright colors. And basically and someone tins. decided that high scores sound good. Right. Uh, so let's, you know, if a fight ends 115-113 instead of 7-5, it right. will sound to the casuals like a lot happened in the fight. Um, 
So I don't think anyone in charge will be convinced anytime soon to abandon the 10-point system. There have been experiments at times with more liberal use of the points, uh, encouraging judges to score a one-sided round 10-8 and a closer round 10-9. Uh, that has been tried here and there. Uh, it's been a while, though, it feels like, since any commissioners were steering judges in that direction. Uh, about 20 years or so ago, one of the alphabet groups tried half points, where a close round was 10 to 9.5, a clear-cut round was 10-9. None of it has stuck. Um, I don't remember that. Yeah, uh, I, I believe it was, I don't think it was ever tried in the U.S. I hate to say an alphabet group's name, just to, just to uh, spell it out. But uh, I believe it was tried in South America somewhere. Um, you can you can do the math. Um, <laughs> so, but, you know, just for a handful of fights, I remember seeing some scores come back with half points. Um, so in any case, in principle, I like Rich's idea. The, the, the two-point system he proposes would probably produce some fair and sensible results. The thing is, a system is only as good as the people using it. And if the judges aren't great at the subjective part of deciding who won a round, and on top of that, now we're asking them to differentiate between a clear round and a close round, it makes no difference if if the judges aren't good or if they've been influenced in some way. Um, you know, I, I thought through some other experiments that have been tried or, or suggested over the years. Of course, it always comes back to open scoring, which sounds good in theory. Uh, it's been tried and it has consistently failed to improve anything. Um, having more judges for big fights, like five judges instead of three, that's been suggested. And I, I think it could help. It reduces variance, but it's also more expensive for the commissions or the promoters. Um, and, and how do you decide what's a big fight that warrants five judges instead of three? But, you know, honestly... I'd love to see Nevada experiment with it. Uh, that, that would seem the right commission to do it. You know, try five judges a few times and just see what happens. I mm. would be cool with that if they wanted to. Um, I have to chuckle when I think of Joe Cortez's much mocked idea from several years ago that judges need to be on eight foot high chairs rather than level That's with right. the ring. Uh, I don't know that, you know, three lifeguard chairs set up around the ring is really the way to go. Look, in the end, the most solvable problem is getting rid of judges who've proven not to be up to the task. That Adelaide Bird can score Canelo Triple G1, 118, 110, and not disappear for at least a year while yeah. she undergo undergoes retraining on how to judge fights, that's the flaw in the system. When I'm running boxing, you turn in one card like that, you're suspended. You turn in a certain number of bad but less egregious than that type of cards, maybe say like three minor infractions, you're suspended and have to undergo retraining. We'll never get rid of all bad decisions. It's a part of boxing. But if we weed out the worst of the judges, I think we'll get better decisions. Uh, mm. And and I think that's true sort of regardless of the point system and how the points are distributed. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was I was a bit long-winded there. Uh, but uh, That's an important topic. It is. It is. Um, I don't think I solved anything, but I shared my thoughts, and it was a good question. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's, that's, that's the aim of the podcast. We're <laughs> not going to solve anything, but we'll share our thoughts. There you go. Um, so we'll finish with a lighthearted one from our old friend Paul at Bad News Brown, uh, although the O in Brown is a zero. Uh, if anyone's looking for him on Twitter, that's who he is. Uh, he asks... Hey guys, if you could Frankenstein the perfect boxer using speed, power, defense, and toughness, 
which fighters would you pick these attributes from? Uh, really glad you got another, another platform to continue the great work podcasting. All the best. And then he threw in, of course, we should mention the hashtag AskShowPod. Uh, uh, remind everyone that you want to get into the mailbag, use that hashtag AskShowPod. So, uh, Kieran, you're up first. Uh, Frankenstein away. So let's see. Let's start with speed, shall we? Um, so I went through a couple of different possibilities here. Um, Shakur Stevenson, who we just talked about earlier, leapt out at me. He, I thought he's definitely someone you'd want to consider. Um, in terms of overall quickness, of movement, not just necessarily hand speed, but the alien freakazoid that is Vasily Lamachenko. Mm -hmm. I absolutely considered his ability to warg from one place to the other. Um, uh, it's definitely a factor. But you know what? And there's a little bit of recency bias in a lot of my picks. But I figure. By the way, I'm assuming we're using just active fighters. By the way, that was my assumption going. Uh, well, I'm I'm glad that you assumed that because I didn't. And so the good news is you and I have we're going to have different, different names. Places. Yes, good. good. There we go. Okay. <laughs> so continue. Um, so given, that, so given that my choice is active fighters, even at the age of 40 years old, I'm going with Manny Pacquiao for speed. Okay. Um, um, power, um, I thought about pound for pound. I thought about Naoya Inoue. I thought about maybe Javante Davis who can crack. Mm -hmm. But it's hard. If you're looking at active fighters, surely Deontay Wilder has the single hardest one punch power in in all of boxing so i figure got them uh, so so far you've got the fast hands of manny pacquiao combined with the punching power of deontay wilder already my frankenstein boxer is pretty much invincible whether he has any <laughs> defense or not um i struggled a little bit this is where actually just focusing on active fighters is a bit tricky because i was thinking there's no very obviously unless i'm missing somebody there's no real obvious sort of Hall of Fame defensive fighter like a Pernell Whitaker or a Floyd Mayweather around right now, unless I'm missing somebody. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, I would say that one that you already named, Lomachenko, would be one of the ones to consider, well, but he's not hes not on that level. But Funny you I, should say that. I guess I took your guy, okay? <laughs> so, but I did think, yeah, look, he did look a little bit mortal for a couple of fights there. He got touched up a little bit, but it turned out that they were fights in which... He fought with a messed up shoulder and then came back maybe too soon from a messed up shoulder. And when he was well again, uh, at least against Ant Crawler, he looked pretty much untouchable. So, And really, if you're going to have any kind of Frankenstein's monster fighter, including the best fighters of today, you've got to have Vasily Lomachenko in there. So Vasily Lomachenko. And as for toughness, well, you could probably pick just about any professional boxer by and large. But I was thinking, you know, Gennady Golovkin and Canelo Alvarez beat the holy hell out of each other for 24 hours, uh, 24 rounds, excuse me. And they <laughs> it felt like 24 hours. hours. <laughs> yeah, but in the old days, they'd have been 24 <laughs> hours and they'd have enjoyed it. Um, and they were still standing at the end of it. Um, Andy Ruiz, again, like I said, hmm. recency bias, but I thought, well, he showed a lot of toughness. But honestly, you know what? Uh, Deontay Wilder, who we've already picked, has shown that he can certainly take some, some punishment as well as dish it out. But any man who can get up from the dead mm -hmm. after being polaxed by Deontay Wilder has got to be a pretty hard man. So uh, I'm picking Tyson Fury. Okay. So that's my active fighters, Frankenstein boxer. Yes. Okay. And so I will put together the inactive fighters, Frankenstein boxer. Um, and uh, starting uh, as you did with speed, I know Max Kellerman has his bit he likes to use about how Roy Jones is the fastest fighter he's ever seen, not pound for pound, but just period. Uh, that even compared to teeny tiny guys that Roy's hands were faster. Um, 
I'm not sure I quite agree with that point that Max makes. Uh, I do think he is the fastest fighter pound for pound, uh, but I don't know that I'd say his hands were actually faster than, say, like prime flyweight Mark Sharp Johnson's hands. Um, right. But regardless, in a pound for pound sense, it's a pretty easy one to take Roy's speed. Um, power, so many to choose from. Joe Lewis, George Foreman, Ernie Shavers, Mike Tyson, Deontay Wilder, getting an active guy in there. Um, and these are just the heavyweights. Um, mm. Let's go with Foreman just because I want to see his heavy hands combined with Roy's speed. Uh, heads <laughs> heads would fly into the seventh <laughs> row, I believe. Um, defense, you know, got to be Purnell for me. Uh, I haven't watched enough Willie Pep. Among guys that I've seen plenty of in their prime, Whitaker is the best defensive fighter I've seen. And toughness, I will let my bias show. Let's go with Mickey Ward. Uh, yeah. In part because he was more limited in skill than some other guys you might consider uh, for this category. He really did it purely with body punching and toughness to go as far as he did in his career. So my Frankenstein's monster is Roy Jones, George Foreman, Pernell Whitaker, and Mickey Ward combining to create one unbeatable fighting machine. <laughs> I don't know. My my Pacquiao, Wilder, Lomachenko, Fury Frankenstein has something to say about that. There's only, <laughs> one, way to, there's only one way to sort, sort it out. <laughs> yes. And in terms of realistic ways, there are only zero ways to sort it zero. out. Exactly. Uh, well, so thanks for that question. That was fun. Uh, glad we got a chance to do that. All right. Uh, that will do it for this week's episode. We will be back next week as we attempt again to find enough material to last us through an episode in these dog days of summer. But we will do our best. Uh, so do please actually uh, do your best to keep trying to bail us out and post questions with the hashtag AskShowPod uh, to Twitter. And feel free to tag both Eric and myself if you feel inclined. We'll be back next week. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>